Back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update, episode 109 today. We're going to be talking primarily about the testing methods. Well, yeah, the tests that we do on wood to get the technical properties. I've spent some time talking about the various technical properties. I've even done episodes dedicated to specific technical properties. But this is going to be an overview of what does that test actually look like? When you're doing the Jenka test, what is it? And what do we derive from that? Again, there's a lot of numbers here, but I think if you understand what the test is telling us, whether the number is four or whether the number is 40,000, it will give you a better idea of what does it mean to me when I pick up this wood and I take a tool to the wood or I try to build something out of it. That's, we'll just call that our main topic today. And then I've got a few questions from you guys, one about apricot, which should be fun, and uh, some follow-up questions on thermally modified timber. So that being said, I think it's time to get into this. And I start this show, well, by always thanking my patrons and reminding people that you can go to patreon.com slash lumber update to support the show, sponsor the show, any amount, a dollar, five dollars, $8, whatever, but if you do support it at the $8 tier, you will automatically get the Featured Species of the Month sticker sent to you in the mail. This is a bumper sticker looking thing. Well, it's a vertical bumper sticker and uh, gives you all kinds of technical specifications that we'll be talking about today about a particular species of lumber. It's got pictures of the ingrain, pictures of the face grain, some alternate species, all kinds of useful information. And I've been hearing back from folks who've been getting these now. I think I just mailed out my fourth or fifth sticker. And some people have been saying, you know, what are people doing with this? Other people have been sending me pictures of them stuck to a board in their shop. I got an email uh, the other day from someone who was actually taking the opportunity to go and acquire a piece of the lumber in question and stick the sticker to it, which I love this idea. I can see like in the distant future when there are 200 lumber featured species stickers floating out there in the wild, someone will have amassed a library of 200 species with these stickers on them. And the early ones will probably be yellowed and gray a little bit, but what a cool idea. And hopefully you know, when you go and acquire that piece of, of koa or that piece of cherry, you acquire several boards of it and you get some time to get some hands-on experience with it. And you're setting aside a piece that you've got that sticker on that not only do you have the technical numbers there, but the personal kind of frame of reference. How does that cherry work? And okay, well, here's the number. It's getting an 850 Janka hardness. Well, what does that actually mean in practicality? And that's really where that's the knowledge is power side of things. Once you actually start to have that hands-on experience with a, a particular species, and you can look at those numbers and cross-reference it with other numbers and go, okay, so cherry is about half as hard as white oak. Or put another way, white oak is, white oak is two times harder than cherry, which is why when I drive my chisel into it, it takes two times more effort to do that. That I think is fantastic. So the challenge to all of you who are getting these featured species stickers is go acquire a bit of that lumber, work it and set aside a little block of it. You only need a piece that's about seven inches long and maybe four inches wide and you can stick that featured species sticker on it and you can stick it on a shelf. In fact, use that featured species lumber to build a bookshelf and then put all of your featured 
species with their stickers on the shelf. That's my challenge to you. Anybody who's done that, send me your pictures. And for those of you who have other ideas, I'd love to see what you're doing with these featured species stickers. Is that enough of a commercial? That's probably enough of a commercial. If it's not, I do have another little thing that's running around on lumberupdate.com. That's where this show is hosted. Very few people actually go and check out the show notes for podcasts anymore because it's all pretty much in your podcast player. But if you are looking for some tips on how to buy lumber, I actually did a presentation uh, for the Hand Tool School, actually for apprentices of the Hand Tool School many years ago that talks about like what I've learned, not only as a woodworker, but as someone who's worked in a lumber yard for more than a decade now on the best ways to buy lumber, both for you and for your lumber supplier, helping both of you. So if you're interested in that, go to lumberupdate.com, actually hang out there for about 20 seconds and a little popover will slide onto the screen, or just scroll to the bottom of the screen and look for the opportunity to get the, the buying lumber guide. Yes, I'm asking for your email address. Yes, you're signing up to my email list. No, I won't send you useless crap, but I will send you notifications of the show and occasionally news and things like that. Um, but you will get taken to that video. This used to be a video just for Hand Tool School uh, apprentice members. I'm offering it to the general public. Well, the general public who signs up to my email list. So that's enough commercials. Let's move on. Let's talk some industry news. This is a fun one. Um, wildfires are kind of on everybody's mind. They continue to be problems across the globe. And uh, there's some studies now that say that, you know what? There's a lot of reasons, a lot of reasons. This is just one of many reasons, but eucalyptus, well, it's like lighter fluid. And eucalyptus is one of the most widespread trees. Now let's back up and say eucalyptus, let's refer to eucalyptus as a genus. There are many, many eucalyptus species, but they do roll up under that eucalypt genre or genus. I don't know why I just pluralized genus when I was referring to a single genus. I was trying to be fancy. Look what happened. Uh, I, I just humiliated myself there. What else is new, right? But there are, this, this tree, it grows extraordinarily well. It's a very aggressive growth tree. It grows in all types of climates, all types of moisture amounts. Uh, it certainly grows very, very well in harsh environments, which is why it grows all over Australia, the dry heat of Australia, which is why it's been transplanted and done quite well in other hot places like Portugal, Greece, Spain, Chile, and California, and a little bit in Hawaii as well. And it's just taken hold, and it's been fantastic because it's providing shade for all these people. And city planners for years have been saying, this is great. This is the perfect tree. You know, we can cultivate it here, and we'll have quick, quick growth shade trees and all this fun stuff. Well, the oils in the eucalyptus that, uh, you know, are, are make it rot resistance because it tastes terrible to all bugs. In fact, the only animal that likes it is the koala bear because it has a, an enzyme that actually breaks down this oil. It's pretty much poisonous to everyone else. That same thing, oh yeah, that is volatile and flammable. And it turns out that a lot of these areas that are in wildfire prone areas and in the last year that have seen just an explosion of wildfires and specifically when we talk about Portugal, um, this article that I'm going to point to in the show notes, available at lumberupdate.com, um, there's like, a, it's, oh, I'm not going to be able to find it now that I'm under pressure, but it's a sizable percentage of the country of Portugal is on fire right now. And in 
every single instance, they're eucalyptus forests. Well, you dig a little bit further and you realize, oh, heck yeah. The, the, the starting point of all these um, fires are a stand, is a stand of eucalyptus. It is an inherently flammable foliage. So yeah, there you go, folks. It also happens to be very, very popular. <laughs> People transplanting it everywhere. Well, think twice about that, um, you know, but at the same time, if you have eucalyptus, maybe cut that down for making, for starting fires. Uh, controlled fires, folks, controlled fires, nice fires, like in your fire pit and in your fireplace. Um, but think twice about using it for shade trees or windbreaks or things like that. Um, because if it's breaking the wind and it catches some fire, guess what happens? That windbreak becomes a flame spread. So particularly interesting. I will link to this article. It's actually quite extensive. It's well-researched. I quite enjoyed reading it. Um, thank you to the five or six people that sent it to me. Um, and of course, I didn't write down who sent it to me most recently. You know who you are. Thank you very much. Sound like Elvis. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, let's, uh, let's move quickly away. I've got a, a few other things that come to mind, but I'm going to jump quickly away from the fire forest fire thing because there's, it's, it just makes me sad. Um, I hate seeing all that. And I've been dealing with smoke. Um, gosh, I've been dealing with smoke in the Baltimore region most of the summer, um, just from like Pennsylvania forest fires, the forest fires across the country have just been awful. Um, it's really, really sad to see that. I said I was going to move away from that, and here I am talking about it. Let's move on to um, the technical number of meanings. And this is actually was spawned by an email from Mark. He says, you often quote from the Wood database, and I doubt I'm alone in wondering what all those numbers mean. For example, how is the hardness determined? I'm sure there is some lab procedure, but what does it measure? Does harder wood mean more brittle wood? I'm sure there had to be other nerds out there who are interested in the details. So yeah, you're you're... You're listening to one nerd right now that's very interested in those details. So um, the first thing I will say is it's it's important to understand what these, these technical properties, kind of generically what the technical properties mean. And I did do an episode on that. I want to say it's way back in the first... 10 episodes, I mean, I've been episode four or five or something like that, where I look at actual technical properties and kind of explain what it means to you. But really, I'm just going to be, you know, really uh, um, awful here and suggest if you haven't listened to the previous catalog of episodes, we're on episode 109. I talk about this all the time. Like this is a major call to arms for me and understanding and, and researching the technical properties of wood. Because the one thing that you will never be able to do is know how all the different woods work. No matter how much time you spend working wood and what capacity you spend working wood, you're going to run into an instance where you're the, here's a species that I know nothing about. And as uh, a wider variety of species have become available commercially, and some species are, you know, that were tertiary species are now secondary or even primary species. Um, those now need to be kind of figured into the universe of wood and your own personal understanding of wood. You're never going to be done. You're never going to be able to close the book and say, okay, that's all the woods. You know, all right, I've now finished the internet. I'm done. You know, there's always going to be another species that you'd never heard of. And you may not be able to get your hands on it, but being able to look at the numbers, at the technical 
you know, shearing strength and hardness and modulus of rupture and modulus of elasticity and compression strength and max compression strength, density, specific gravity, all of that, looking at those numbers and then looking at a species that you know, and this is what I was talking about at the beginning of my little advertisement about putting stickers on wood. If you have a lot of experience working with walnut and you know, like when I do, when I saw a walnut um, with, with a handsaw, when I saw a walnut with a table saw, when I sand walnut, when I finish walnut, I know walnut really well. I work with walnut a lot and I can look at that and I can say, okay, it's hardness is 850 to 900. This species I've never heard of before has a hardness of, you know, 1100. Well, it's certainly harder, but it's not that much harder. And in fact, when I look at walnut numbers, sometimes walnut is quoted as being 1,000 to 1,050, sometimes even up to 1,090. So you can say, all right, you know, I've run into walnut that seems harder than some other walnut and some walnut that seems softer than others. And this wood is now about the same. So it's probably going to take a chisel about the same. It's probably going to give me the same feedback when I'm sawing it or, or possibly planing it. You can look at the other aspects of walnut and compare that to the species you're looking at. And the modulus of rupture on the walnut is, is this. I don't know that number off the top of my head. I probably do if I think hard enough. But the modulus of rupture on this other new species is four times that. Well, what does that mean? And being able to have an understanding of what each one of these technical properties means, means that you're never going to be at a loss. You're never going to be able to be faced with a new species as long as you have those technical numbers and go, oh, I wonder how it works. Or take it from my from my perspective as a woodworker, and many of you listening, I want to build a project out of this. And you're scrolling through the wood database, looking at pictures, or you open the wood handbook, and you're looking at pictures, and you go, ooh, that's pretty. Goncalo Alvis. How pretty is that? Also known as tiger wood and decking circles. I want to build something out of that. And then, you know, you do a little bit of Googling and maybe you find a supplier. In fact, you probably will find a supplier of Goncalo Alves. You'll more readily find a supplier of Tigerwood. It's because what it's more commercially known as. And you won't find a lot of suppliers of Goncalo Alves, but you may find all kinds of Tigerwood people. So first of all, knowing some of the common names can help you with that. And that is usually listed next to technical properties. But you'll be wondering, you know, do I want to do this? Do I really want to build a piece of furniture out of uh, Goncala Alves? Well, I'm uh, frantically uh, going to the wood database right now and pulling up the page because I don't know those technical properties off the top of my head. I know it's hard. Just put it that way. The Dejanka hardness is 2170 foot pounds, um, or you could say pounds per square inch. It's not quite the same, I know, but let's just refer to it as something we can understand. If you've ever inflated your tires in your car or on your bike, you understand pounds per square inch. Um, you know, when you blow up a tire to 30 PSI and you push on it with your finger, you go, dang, that's hard. You blow up, you know, your bike tire up to 110 PSI because you're running 19 millimeter tires and you're riding on a velodrome. So that's the only reason you ever do that. And you go, my God, that's rock hard. Well, let's look at Goncala Alves, 2170 pounds per square inch. Well, I'm used to working with walnut at like 900. Holy crap, that's almost three times, two and a half times harder than walnut. Do I really want to build this piece of furniture or whatever I'm talking about out of 
something that is that hard. Like, how do I plan on building? I'm a power tool woodworker or I'm a hand tool woodworker or like, I'm scared of that. And rightfully so, you might be scared of that. And you might determine, okay, maybe Goncala Alves isn't the best idea. And then you look further down and you go, you know what? It's got a TR ratio of 1.9. Like that's not very stable. Um, and I, and maybe you don't know what that means, TR ratio of 1.9, but you look at walnut and you see, well, I know how walnut moves and I know how to build to accommodate um, the movement in walnut. Well, walnut has a TR ratio of 1.4. So yes, it's you know 0.5 difference, but if you have an understanding of what the TR ratio means, you realize that, okay, it's more unstable. It's going to move around on me more, possibly more predictably, or excuse me, unpredictably. Maybe I don't want to build the, uh, a piece of uh, furniture out of Gakala Alves. Or you look at it and go, you know what? I'm, I, I see this. I accept it. I love how pretty it is. I want to build something from it, but I know what I'm getting into. So you can dig a little bit further in some of these technical numbers and start to understand how that wood is going to work without ever touching it and picking it up. Now, don't get me wrong, there is no substitute for putting tool to wood, but rather than just blindly picking up the wood and, and, and being like, wow, you know, you pick it up and go, geez, that's heavy and gosh darn, that's hard. No, you're going to know that going in. So let's look at these numbers. And, and let me just remind you, um, episode 35, I specifically talked about modulus of rupture and modulus of elasticity in greater detail. And it's worth kind of going back and listening to that. In episode 30, I talked about shearing strength, and it's worth going back and listening specifically about that. In episode 29, I talked about the Janka hardness and really what does that mean and how it's tested. So I, I technically... I'm reviewing right now. I have talked about this stuff in previous episodes, but I'm hopeful that we can kind of do an overview of all of this in this particular episode and you can kind of spin off from there. And I'll do my best to actually go ahead and link to those individual episodes in the show notes of this particular podcast. So you may have like a place to start and kind of branch out depending on how, um, how geeky do you really want to get, right? Like how much, how far down the rabbit hole do you really want to go? And finally, uh, I was right. It was in the first couple of five. Episode five is called Lumber Technical Properties. And that's where I kind of list all these things off. And I talk about what I've just spoken about, how forget about the actual number, forget about the values, but understand them in relation to others. Look at those numbers as comparison from a known species to the unknown species. Have working knowledge, actual applied working knowledge of a species, know those numbers, and then compare it to the unknown. I have been doing this for years, several decades actually now, and to great success, and I've actually been able to, um, the more you understand it, and more importantly, how each one of these technical properties plays off of one another, when there's higher density, you can expect higher hardness. Um, and there are some instances where when you kind of cross-reference that with the porosity or the structure, you can actually see, okay, well, this species has high hardness, but it's actually easier to work than the hardness denotes because of its porosity. This is next level type stuff, but you want to talk about getting geeky, this is the fun stuff. This is when you can really, truly, with a high amount of accuracy, predict how a species of wood that you've never laid hands on is going to work just by looking at those properties and comparing it to your hands-on experience with other woods that you've known. So again, 
we're calling this review, uh, I'm calling it a summary, and yet here I am already 20 minutes into this recording and we really haven't gotten to it. So let's talk about the, really the, the, the most important ones. There's a bunch of different numbers. Some of them are really hard to find. So let's talk about the numbers that can be found just about anywhere. And frankly, I'm always saying the Wood Database is the place to go. Um, you will find these on the Wood Database. So first, Janka Hardness. I think the number one thing to look at. That's the first thing that I look at. Um, specific gravity slash density. They're not quite the same, but let's talk about them in the same. Those, I definitely look at that. Weight. It's kind of relative, but to me, and, and the number is really kind of stupid, and we'll get to that when we talk about the units, but it, it can really, from a comparison perspective, when I look at Western Red Cedar at 19 um, pounds per cubic foot compared to White Oak, which I think is 35, let's just say it is, <laughs> you know, okay, well, that's a big difference. And if you're trying to identify a species and you're like, well, this is lighter than this White Oak I have in my hand, so it's probably somewhere in here, but it's heavier than the Western Red Cedar, it can be really beneficial. So, um, weight, and then um, modulus of rupture and modulus of elasticity. And really in that order, hardness or Janka number, specific gravity slash density, weight being third, MOR and MOE really interchangeably fourth and fifth that you're looking at. And then when you start getting to more obscure things, to me as a hand tool woodworker, shearing strength is a big deal to me. But I will warn you, that can be a harder number to find. It's not often listed on the wood database, but usually a little bit of Googling. Um, domestic, North American domestic species, generally that number can be found in the Forest Products Laboratory Wood Handbook, which I will link to. Um, you can download a PDF copy of that. I'll also link to that in the show notes. But do a little bit of Googling the species. And like for Australian species, a lot of the states, the their equivalent of Forest Product Laboratories will have some of those those numbers. A lot of the major exporters of wood from around the world will have some of those numbers as well. Finally, um, crushing strength is something to look at as well. And I'm not really going to rank that. That number is a little bit easier to find. Um, let's just sum up crushing strength and say that is the absolute strongest property of wood. And it is extraordinarily rare that you will ever build anything. I don't care if you're a commercial builder to listen to this who builds bridges that trucks drive over. Um, it is rare that you will build something whose forces will exceed the crushing strength of most woods. And if it does exceed the crushing strength of a particular species of wood, you would never be using it for that application anyway. Like the other numbers, like bending strength and, and, and stiffness or rigidity would be so low that you would never use it for building that bridge anyway. You wouldn't build a bridge out of balsa wood. So yes, the crushing strength of balsa wood would probably not be the same. So you know what? Even though it's not, um, to me, it's not super important, it does give you an idea of an overall strength. So let's start there. Crushing strength, take a stick. Imagine... Uh, a, a two, two inch wide by two inch thick stick, like a turning square that is however long. We'll just say it's 24 inches long. Put that 24 inch long stick on the floor and then put your foot on top of it. So it's sticking straight up. Stand on that. And the force that you're exerting through the ingrain directly into the floor is the crushing strength. That is directly along the longitudinal fibers of the wood. That is the strongest direction 
of the wood that is absolutely possible. No other number will be higher than crushing strength. Those units, just like most of the technical properties, would be measured in uh, pounds of force per square inch. Again, we can kind of think of it as pounds per square inch, but again, it is it is a pressure pounds of force thing. There is a, a vector going on here, or it'll often be um, uh, shown as uh, megapascals in in metric. This is important in terms of anytime you've got force directly in the end grain. So think of like a table leg or a chair leg. If you sit down on a chair, you know, generally you're pushing straight down on the long axis of those legs. Like I said, that number is so enormously high that in most applications, it's not even going to be important. But Crushing strength is something that you will find relatively easily in most places like the wood database. So let's go back up to the top. The most important thing, I think, the most telling indicator is hardness. This is done, performed with the Janka test, which is why it's often referred to as the Janka number or Janka hardness. Essentially, the Janka test is a steel ball that's about a half an inch in diameter. Technically, it's 0.444 inches in diameter. That steel ball is pressed into the wood to half of its diameter. Um, the wood during this test needs to be at 12% moisture content. So obviously, the greener it is, the wetter it is, the softer the wood's gonna be, and an oven dry or 0% bone dry wood is going to be harder. So all of these tests should, 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 should be performed at 12% moisture content at 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so yeah, the reason that I say that should is because sometimes people use oven weight numbers. And sometimes you will actually find two numbers where one will be the oven weight hardness and one will be the 12% moisture hardness. And this actually applies for all of these tests, bending strength, density, things like that. Some places, and Wood Database actually does this, I think, under density or specific gravity, they will show the oven dry number and then the um, the 12% number. So again, Janka, it's, it's talked about a lot more and the flooring industry leans on this a lot because it's a measure of how hard it is. Think about it. It's a steel ball. How much force is required to push that steel ball that's a half an inch, you know, footprint, if you will, a half an inch into the wood. So think about this in practical applications. A woman in high heels walking on a hardwood floor. You know, the point of that high heel, that could be about, you know, dependent upon how high of a heel it is, what kind of a stiletto heel, you could imagine very easily to get to a half an inch or even narrower if they're really high stiletto heels, um, you can imagine that pressure could actually come up in everyday use as that woman is walking across the floor. Or you know what? Who am I to say that it just has to be a woman? Today's day and age, anyone who's choosing to wear a high heel could be walking across that floor and you know the amount of force that you're exerting through that you know half inch uh, pressure point where the high heel actually contacts the wood could very easily get way way up there you know exponentially higher than your actual body weight. Um, so what does that mean to flooring? You know, are you going to dent your floor? Um, think about uh, I've had dogs all my life. You know, the the nails of 
my uh, newfie golden retriever, Alex. Alex weighed 165 pounds. He was a big boy. And, you know, you imagine the pressure point when his nails contact the wood, that's quite a bit smaller than a half an inch in diameter. It's much, much smaller. So, you know, that foot pounds, foot pounds of force per square inch goes up dramatically. And you can imagine very quickly, you could scratch or dent that floor. Um, so this is a very practical thing to understand when you're building furniture. So when I say that walnut has a Jenka hardness of about 850 to a thousand, I'm referring to, um, imperial numbers there, uh, foot pounds per square inch or pounds of force per square inch. That's a lot. If you think about how many pounds that requires, but come down to like the point of a ballpoint pen much, much, much smaller than half an inch. And yeah, writing with a ballpoint print on walnut will actually, you'll be able to see what you wrote on that ballpoint, you know, on your walnut desktop. So it's something to consider as compared to the more than 1,400 pounds of force that is hard maple. You know, hard maple might make a better countertop or desktop. Or, you know, you have to think about these things when it comes to the type of finish that you use because certain varnishes will certainly up you know, the essential, the, the, the relative Janka hardness of that wood. That's why this is important. Working it is going to be dramatically affected by that. Driving a chisel into it, driving a saw across it. Every single blade that touches that wood is going to be impacted by how hard that wood is. That's why I say that's the most important one. Um, specific gravity and density. Um, for the most part, again, you will find people that give you the oven dry number or the 0% moisture. And we call it oven dry because you literally stick the board in the oven, turn up the heat until all the moisture is evaporated and the, the moisture meter reads 0%. We do this a lot actually at the lumber yard in order to get an absolute weight. This is how much it weighs when it's zero. Then we go out into the yard and weigh what's there and you can calculate the amount of water and you can determine the actual percentage of moisture percentage of the particular board based on the weight differential. Um, that number is a bit misleading because Rarely, if ever, are you going to be working wood that's 0%. And if you are, it's liable to move quite a bit on you. And it's liable to be a little bit more brittle because that number will be higher. Um, excuse me, um, the hardness number, I'm still thinking hardness, will be higher when it's bone dry. The specific gravity and density is going to vary there on that number as well. So 12% is a pretty common number. But if you live in the desert and most of your lumber acclimates and comes into equilibrium around... 4% or 6%, you realize that the numbers that you find will be a little bit skewed, not dramatically enough to get really upset about it and have to figure out, well, what is it in 4%? Although I suppose technically that could be calculated. The important part here is it's it's how much, how dense it is. I mean, it's, it's pretty self-explanatory, really. You know, um, one specific gravity of water is one. So if the specific gravity of lignum vitae is, I think, 1.4, yes, it will sink in water. Ebony will sink in water. Ipe will sink in water because its specific gravity is higher than one. Most wood is less than one, and therefore it floats in water. So this is really giving us an idea of just how much mass there is there. More importantly, the way I like to think of it in terms of working wood is how much air how much dead space is in the wood? The lower the density, you know, you can take a block of the exact same size, something like Western red cedar and take like a, you know, a, a two inch cube of Western red cedar and a two inch cube of white oak. And 
looking at the density numbers, and I don't have those numbers in front of me, but I'm just going to make something up. Don't quote me on this. Uh, Western Red would be 0.25, and White Oak is probably going to be about 0.49 or 5. So there is a lot more. It's And again, same volume, 2-inch cube, but there's a lot more air. There's a lot more dead space and twice as much dead space in the Western Red Cedar. And by the way, those, that proportion I'm pretty certain of that proportion. I may not have the exact numbers right, but I'm pretty certain white oak is about twice as dense as Western Red, are pretty dang close to that. So as I'm driving the chisel into it, as I'm sawing it with hand or power tools, there's a lot more just dead space in there that's easier to overcome, which means the wood feels softer. Now, this will directly translate to the Janka number. Um, It certainly will require less pressure to push that ball in because there's a lot of dead space it's in the way. These are directly proportional to one another. There are other little things that sometimes skew that, but for the large part, the denser or high, the denser something is, or the higher the specific gravity of something is, the harder something will be, the higher the Jenka number will be. Um, and you know, you may say, well, why don't I just pay attention to the Jenka number or why don't I just pay attention to the density number? Well, you can't always get both of them. And as I said, sometimes the specific gravity number can be a bit skewed based upon the moisture content. So you can kind of fall back on one or the other. Jenka hardness has become kind of universal and you can pretty much find it for everything. So that's why it's the first number that I look at. But if I run across a wood, two species of wood that have the same Janka hardness number. But when I work it, it's like, man, this one feels so much easier to work. It's so much more agreeable. It's such a friendly wood. It's so easy to work. You hear these terms all the time. You know, what does that mean? It's easy to work. And if you look at the number, it's like, well, why is it easy to work when the Janka hardness is exactly the same? Look at the density and you'll find that the one that is easier to work has a lower density or a lower specific gravity. There's more dead air in there. So why is the Janka hardness the same? Well, what isn't dead air? The stuff, the cellulose, the lignin, that by itself is inherently harder. Now, so therefore it is more massive, it is more dense, but there could be more dead air. And a good example of this in practice is Wingay. We joke about Wingay being super splintery. Just look at it crooked and you'll get splinters off of it. It is quite hard. Um, again, I want to say the Janka hardness is over 2000, but it's actually quite a lot easier to work. I find it substantially easier to work with than hard maple, whose Janka hardness is 1400. Um, so you would say, well, you know, this this to me tells you that you can't just look at one number. Janka hardness gets you in the ballpark, but in the instance of Wingay, and I actually think something like White Oak, hardness of around 1,200 to up to about 1,500, to me, White Oak is substantially easier to work than hard maple. Um, and in many instances, it's either the same Janka hardness or sometimes even a higher Janka hardness than hard maple due to the structure of Wingay, due to the structure of white oak. In this case, both of them having really large pores, aka more dead air in the wood, it actually is easier to drive a chisel through it. Now there's other things that bear, like the structure of the wood in white oak is more prone to splitting or riving, and you can actually shear it apart or split it apart relatively easier. There's a lot of other little ancillary factors, but it's one of the reasons that I look at hardness and then density. 
I can look at hardness and go, oh, that's hard. That's going to be hard to drive a chisel in. But let's check specific gravity. Oh, you know what? Specific gravity is actually quite a bit lower. So it's going to feel softer when I'm working it. The relative, the perception of its hardness will be lower because the density is lower. And that's why that's this number two uh, 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 technical property that I look at. Um, weight. Very similar to density, like the denser it is, the heavier it's going to be. Now, obviously, weight is based upon gravitational constant, 9.81 meters per second per second. Um, So if a a particular wood is really heavy, go to another planet. (laughs) There's your solution right there. So for all of you people wanting to join Elon Musk going to Mars, you know, your wood is going to weigh a lot less and that's going to change things. But to me, weight, it's just something we can relate to. We know how much things weigh. If you lift weights, you know how much a 10 pound weight is or a 25 pound weight is. You know, you go to the grocery store, you have an idea how much a gallon of milk weighs. And now that I say that, I have no idea the poundage on a gallon of milk. I would say close to five pounds. I could be way off, but whatever. We can understand, we can relate to what things weigh. The problem with weight is, well, how is it measured? It's put on a scale. But the unit here, not the unit, the test sample of all of this is per cubic foot or for um, cubic meter. And, um, you know, so pounds per cubic foot or kilogram for cubic meter. Well, when was the last time you came across a cubic meter or a cubic foot of wood? You know, a 12 inch by 12 inch by 12 inch block of, of white oak. Um, it just doesn't happen. Now you can do some math and figure out what would a one inch by 12 inch by 24 inch long um, block of wood weigh because I know that it weighs, you know, X per 12 by 12 by 12. But the important part again is the relative comparison. If I said this earlier. If Western red cedar weighs 19 pounds per cubic foot and white oak weighs 35 pounds per cubic foot, that helps me understand just how heavy it is. So if I'm going to build a chest of drawers out of white oak, well, there's probably going to be at least a cubic foot of wood altogether in that chest of drawers, probably several cubic feet of wood in that chest of drawers. And you could do the math and figure out, you know, the volume and amount of dead space and figure out the actual volume of wood in there and be able to determine if I build that chest of drawers out of white oak, it's going to weigh 78 pounds. Holy crap. I don't want to lift that up the stairs. Let's build it out of cherry. And now it's going to be 38 pounds. Probably not. It's probably still going to be about 50 pounds in cherry, but I could build it out of pine, pick a pine, and I could end up getting that chest of drawers below a certain weight. Maybe that's that's important. Maybe it's important to build a super lightweight chest of drawers because you know it's for your kid going to college and it's going to move at least four times in the next four years and possibly 10 times over the next 10 years. So making it lightweight is going to be beneficial. Maybe you're choosing a siding species. And you're going to have 15 foot long boards that you're going to have to climb up a ladder and nail up to the side of a house. Do I want to do it in Ipe? Ipe may look pretty, but dang, those 15 foot boards are going to be super heavy. And you're probably going to pull something as you're nailing it up. And it's going to be a real problem. But Western red cedar, great cladding species, because guess what? It's super lightweight. And that's why that weight number is important. Again, the cubic foot thing is a little unwieldy. We can't really relate to that. But 
it's pretty easy to do the math and figure out exactly what's going to weigh. And more importantly, you'd be surprised how quickly over a larger structure, over multiple boards nailed and joined together, how quickly you can get to an actual cubic foot of wood. It doesn't actually take that much wood to get to that. And you could kind of kind of figure it out. If you've got a 12 inch wide board that's one inch thick, you really only need, what, 12? <laughs> 12 inch wide board that's one inch thick is is one yeah so you need 12 inches in order to get a cubic meter i'm probably totally wrong in that because i'm not visualizing this but you get the idea you can do the math and you can figure out exactly what the weight means and that's why i find that number to be in the top three of importance so now we get to mor and moe modulus of rupture and modulus of elasticity to me modulus of rupture um, and modulus of elasticity tells you how does it deal under load, under stress? How bendy is it? The bending strength and the stiffness. And to me, stiffness is important when you're talking about span. I'm building a bookshelf and I'm going to have a 36 inch long shelf that's going to have a static load, aka books, on it. Will that shelf deform? Will it sag? But more importantly, Will it sag and set in that sag or will it spring back? Does it have the, the elasticity to spring back to its original shape? Building a deck and, you know, for whatever reason, I'm not able to meet code and have um, the, the joists exactly where they need to be. So I'm going to build them, you know, 24 inches on center instead of 16 inches on center or sometimes 12 inches on center. Um, yeah, it probably won't pass code, but I'm just building it for myself. I don't want the boards to be springing. I don't want a little, you know, wooden trampoline as I'm walking across the deck. So how do I find a species that's going to span that 24 inch from joist to joist without sagging dramatically and without, you know, being bouncy in between? That's where these numbers come into bear. So the bending strength, essentially these are span tests. So both MRE um, and MOR, uh, Young's modulus, another way to put it, Poisson's ratio, there's a bunch of different physics and mechanical engineering terms for this. And what the test is, you essentially take a board, you uh, span it over two points, and then in the middle of those two points, you push on it. <laughs> and the exact amount of the test, there are testing apparatus out there that do this. And because there is an actual, um, there, a lot of this can be calculated and there's really, really uh, uh, involved, well, not really that involved calculations. MOE is PL cubed divided by 48 ID. So the load being P in pounds, times the test span in inches, the cube of that test span. So the amount of, of pounds placed over this span divided by 48 times um, the moment of inertia times the uh, D, um, which is the, 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 the amount of deflection, the, the, the inches of deflection. So the moment of inertia, um, uh, the inertia of a rigid body uh, is with respect to, um, this case, uh, like uh, the, the cross, the rectangle, well, I don't want to get into that. Let's, I'm really getting deep into the weeds here, but it can be calculated in other words. So you can build the test apparatus for your specific application. So forest products laboratory doesn't necessarily say the, the MOE test needs to be performed with a 48 inch span and a one inch thick board. Um, 
There are some testing numbers out there and the Wood Handbook will list some of those numbers and I believe in the appendix it will tell you what those dimensions were. But if you're building trusses or you're building cross-laminated timber and your average you know, timber is, is 12 by 18 by 38 feet long, this MO, uh, MOE number for a one inch thick board is kind of irrelevant to you. So you generally will have a test apparatus that is flexible enough for you to make sense to you. You know, in other words, you need to be able to apply enough force to cause deflection in a 10 inch thick CLT. Um, you need a test apparatus that has uh, enough distance between the, the span points, you know, say you need it to be 18 feet. So there'll be various apparatus, apparati, apparatuses? What is the plural of apparatus? I think it's apparatus. But anyway, you need you need that to be custom designed for your particular application. So there's not a lot of standardization there. There are some tests, um, and depending on where you are in the world, whether you're talking ASTM or ANSI, there are various tests out there that, that you may have to meet um, wherever you're building. And the engineers in the world will know what these are. The architects will know what they are that they have to meet. So, but really it all ends up being the same, whether it's an MOE or an MOR test, you're spanning between two things. Um, in the bending strength test, you're pushing on it in the center of that span until it snaps, until it breaks, um, until there is failure. In other words, um, the stiffness test, um, modulus of elasticity. So modulus of rupture is the bending strength. How far can you push it before it breaks? The, um, stiffness or modulus of elasticity is um, at what point, like how much deflection from the norm. So when it's spanning across um, from, from point to point in whatever plane it's sitting in, that's the zero point. And as you push in the middle, um, right before it breaks, before failure, what is that distance? What is that amount of deflection. And then we'll also, you can do further measurements to show how much does it spring back. And bending strength can be used in this as well. The elasticity of it. Will it spring back on you? That's where that elastic elasticity part. There's several different variations on this that can tell you a lot of different things. But those numbers are enormously high in both instances to the point that you really can't wrap your head around them. Measured in, in millions of foot pounds and millions of megapascals. Um, in tens of thousands in, the, uh, in some instances. But here again, you're comparing those numbers. But if I'm building something that's under a static load um, and, and I'm not really worried about spans, these numbers don't really mean a lot. But if I'm building something that is specifically going to undergo dynamic loads or is going to be constantly bent and unbent, like a bow for a bow and arrow um, or a baseball bat, those numbers are really, really important. And that's why baseball bats used to be made out of hickory because it has phenomenal MOR and MOE numbers. Um, Osage Orange or Bowwood, same type of situation. Um, and hickory, you look at some of the other numbers, you will see hickory is very hard, it's very dense, and it's got really, really high numbers. A lot, in most instances, these are directly proportional numbers. But there's also a point where those hardnesses get to the point and you start to see the rigidity fall off. In other words, it gets so hard that it's brittle. And we're talking things like ebony, um, lignum vitae. Uh, you'll find that some of those those uh, bending strength numbers, I haven't gotten shearing strength yet, but shearing strength numbers, um, compression numbers will start to fall off because it's so hard that now it's just plain brittle. And, and that's 
kind of we start to get into that with something like hard maple. Hard maple at face value from its Janka hardness number is not super, super hard. As compared to lignum vitae at like 4,300, hard maple's at like 1,400. Um, it's not that not that hard, but due to the density and the structure, the diffuse porous nature of hard maple, it's actually quite brittle. And when baseball bats now that are made out of maple break, they shatter like quartz or flint and they go flying across the, you know, the home plate and into that netting behind home plate. That is, again, the the combination of all of these features together to reach those numbers. So again, MOR and MRE, it's, it's about moving the wood, bending the wood, putting it under constant load. How does it spring back? At what point does it rupture? At what point does it break? These things are important when you're talking about chair building, you know, when you're leaning back on that leg or when you're constantly sliding that chair back and forth, it can be important when you're talking about striking implements. So what do I make um, the handle of my ax out of? What do I make the handle of my mallet out of, et cetera? These are very, you know, simple applications, but you start talking about structures like decks and things like that. What kind of load can it take against pounding surf for that matter? What kind of bending and deflection can it undergo before it fails? And that's really where these numbers come into bear. And I never really used to care personally about those numbers much until I started building chairs um, and until I started talking about riving wood and building like Windsor chairs and things like that, that's when I really started to hone in on the MOR and MOE numbers and start to understand how they relate to all the other numbers. Finally, let's look at shearing strength. Um, this one can be hard to find, but a little bit of digging, you can find it. Uh, doesn't show up in the wood database much, but the way I like to think of shearing strength as a hand tool woodworker is when I take my hand plane to a wood and I pull up a shaving, I am planing parallel to the grain. The shearing strength is how much force it takes to peel up that shaving. So um, another way to look at this is if I'm trying to drive a wedge and trying to break or split wood, in many ways, that's a shearing force that's happening. Now, there's a lot of other factors that go into play there. Um, the mechanical advantage of the wedge can, can decrease the amount of force required for shearing strength, but ultimately the shearing strength can be tied to a species. And the lower that shearing strength, the easier it is to split the wood, the easier it is to hand plane the wood. For me, in practical uses, Again, it's measured in terms of, you know, it's, it's a force. So pounds of force per square inch or megapascals. To me, I like to look at this number kind of similar to what I was talking before where something is the same hardness, but it feels softer. Um, I will look at that number in comparison to the hardness and compare it to something that I know. I know that cherry planes really well but to me, walnut planes even better. And those are good examples because the hardness is very similar in both cherry and walnut. You'll find that the specific gravity is quite similar as well, but the shearing strength of walnut is about a third less than cherry, which is why walnut to me planes like a dream. Cherry planes good, but walnut is gooder, much gooder. Um, and that's due to the lower shearing strength. 
That can be related to a lot of things. Mostly it's the structure of the wood, walnut being a semi-ring porous wood, whereas terry being a diffuse porous wood. Again, more dead air, a little bit more order or organization to the structure means that there's more of like a perforation line. If you think about a perforation, it means it's easier to tear the wood along that line, AKA shear away shaving, uh, which is why I find walnut, despite similar density, similar specific gravity, similar hardness, planes better and easier, both, you know, perception, but also technically looking at the numbers, that's why it's important. That is assuming you can find that number. So a lot of times I, if I'm really like kind of stumped on how a wood will work, I'll turn to these kind of tertiary and quadrate type things like shearing strength, and that will tell me a lot. And even just looking at the number in relation to other woods where I can get the shearing strength and those, the known woods and what their ratio is of hardness and density to shearing strength will tell me, okay, well, this is twice as hard as the known wood, but the shearing strength is also in proportion. So it should therefore be twice as difficult to plane. Um, twice as difficult to pull up a shaving, possibly twice as difficult to sand. Eh, that's a little bit different because you're talking about multiple points of contact things like that. But here again, you can see how all of these things will interrelate to one another. There are other technical properties, but honestly, I don't know that they really play that big of a role. The last one that I do want to look at is movement. We all know that wood moves, right? It moves tangentially, it moves radial, less radially, and it moves practically not at all longitudinally. So understanding the percentage that wood will move tangentially means you can account for, if I've got a flats on board, I kind of know how much it's gonna move uh, based upon humidity numbers and things like that and how I need to compensate for it. The ratio of movement tangentially to radially, however, will tell you how much that wood will deform. And as with all of these properties, wood is not isometric, meaning it does not move the same in all directions. It is anisometric. It moves differently um, tangentially than it does radially. It is, um, uh, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Orthogonal? Um, where it does not, it does not have the same properties in all directions. This can be examined by take a board and uh, try to break it along its length. You can do it, but it takes a lot more force than trying to break a board across its width. Go to any small child's karate class and, uh, you know, before you get too impressed by them breaking that, that piece of Western red cedar across its width, recognize that it's, that's the weakest direction when you're splitting it along the grain like that, then you're trying to actually break it along the fibers. Um, it does not move the same way in all those directions. It doesn't have the same strength in all those directions, which is why we have a lot of different tests that show compression across the grain, parallel to the grain, et cetera. The movement is the same way. And because there's a differential in movement radially tangible to tangentially, that's how we get wood that warps, that twists, that cups, that bows. And the greater the, the disparity in other words, the difference in, in ratio, a TR ratio, a tangential to radial ratio of one means that they're equal, meaning that that board's gonna be quite stable. It doesn't mean stable and it won't move. Like it could have a tangential movement of 20%, but if it has a radial movement of 20%, this does not exist as far as I know, it's going to move equally in all directions, which means it's not gonna cup. 
or it's going to cup very little. The cupping happens because it's not moving much in one direction and it's moving a bunch in the other direction in order to compensate this solid object has to cup up, turn into a potato chip to account for that. So a TR ratio of 1.9 means it's going to warp and cup and twist more than 1.2. And that's really something to think about. So when I am taking my piece uh, of butternut and I'm resawing it, so I'm, I know that I'm going to immediately expose a bunch of, of fresh wood, possibly wetter wood, to the air, and it's going to undergo a change. That TR ratio will tell me, like, how much do I have to worry about this turning into a potato chip? How much do I need to stack and sticker this? How much do I need to restrain this from moving because it's going to move a lot on me? Or the TR ratio is quite low, so... I can feel good resawing this into a thinner board and kind of walking away from it. These are very important things to think about. And for everybody who's been like, I reset that board and it came back and they were completely unusable. Well, you shouldn't be surprised by that. If you've done your homework and you know what the TR ratio is, you will know that that's going to happen. And there are a bunch of ways to counteract that, compensate for that by removing an equal amount of wood on both faces, by stacking, stickering, providing adequate airflow, possibly ratcheting strap it to prevent it from doing a lot of that while it equilibriates. There's a lot of different little tricks of the trade to do that. But Saying I didn't know I was going to do that. Sorry, folks. If you listen to this show, that's not an excuse. And I will have no pity on you if you say I didn't know I was going to do that. Because TR ratio is something that's pretty dang easy to find. If it's not listed as TR ratio, the tangential and radial movement will often be listed. Do the math (laughs) to figure out what it is. Reduce the fraction. If the tangential is 6 and the the radial is 2, well, then the TR ratio is 3 to 1 or 1.3. That's how it's going to be put. Yeah, you get the idea. I'm a music major, folks. I can't do math off the top of my head, but you get the idea. That tells you it's relative stability. And stability, it's so key that I say this over and over again. Stability is not, it doesn't move. If it's stable, it doesn't move. No, 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 no. All wood moves. Uh, I wrote a blog post years ago entitled, Wood Moves, Get Over It. Like there's no way to stop the wood moving and don't be afraid of the wood moving. It's the anisotropic nature, isometric nature, let me say, of wood moving that causes boards to cup, that causes boards to twist. Now saying all that, wood is an organic material, knots affect it, uh, undulating grain affects it, uh, all kinds of things affect how wood moves. For that matter, all of those same things affect the strength properties. A board with a knot in it is going to have a lower compression strength. It's going to have a lower bending strength, a lower rigidity because the knot is a defect. A knot is an interruption in the grain. And now instead of you having all long grain, you've got short grain, you've got in grain poking right at the middle of the board. And the deformation of the grain around that knot causes all kinds of unpredictability, which is why so many times when these tests are performed, they performed on clear defect-free wood because you know, the calculations required to, to account for that defect would probably require a supercomputer. And frankly, why would you calculate that? Because are you going to find a board that has that not exact same size, exact same density, and the exact same spot on the board? No. The only way you can do this is have perfectly clear wood. So the minute you start to have defects, and guess what, folks? Figure is a defect. We may think it's a purdy defect, but it's a defect. And that will affect these strength properties as well. 
So it's, it's kind of my way of saying everything that we just talked about, you can throw it out the window because all wood looks a little bit different. But what does this tell us? These numbers, while they may be cumbersome and while they may not mean much to us, when you compare these numbers from one species to another, you can compare relatively how hard something is compared to another one. And what does that hardness mean in terms of workability? Well, when I cross-reference that with its specific gravity and density, and I cross-reference that, uh, I get an idea of, of really how hard is it and what is the perception of how hard it is when I actually work it. Well, now I'm going to apply force to it. Well, what kind of bending strength does it have? Well, this number means nothing. It's 1.7 megapascals. Okay, that means nothing. But this wood that I know, understand, you know, I built a bookshelf out of it. This, this number is also 1.7 million. So now I have an idea. This is at the heart of it. And I know that I've talked about this already. And I know some of you are like, dude, we get it already. But there's a lot of you out there who don't. I get emails all week long with questions like this. And how shall I put this politely? No, I don't need to put this politely. I'm happy. I'm happy to receive these emails. Please don't misunderstand me. And actually lately, People have been listening to my conversations about wood identification because I've been getting some great emails with fantastic pictures that are actually in focus that I can actually do successful identifications from. I love that. I love helping to spread identification ideas. Sometimes I'm wrong too. Don't get me, don't get me wrong. I'm not perfect on this. But every time I get an email that says, well, you built this out of cherry, what happens if I build it out of white oak? And my immediate answer is, I want to say, well, you tell me. Because all the data you need to know to answer that question is available to you. If you only understand how to look at these technical properties and how to cross-reference from one species to another. And once you kind of wrap your head around that, oh my God, it's amazing. You suddenly realize like, I know how every wood in the world works. Like as long as I can get these properties and really they should be easy to get. You know, if you can't find them, it's a really obscure species. And if that happens, here's a little extra bonus to this episode. If that happens and you can't, it's a weird tertiary species only found in the rainforest. It's not being commercially exported, but it's probably been botanically identified, right? You know, if it's, if it's completely unknown, then guess what? You know, you just became famous. You get to name it, folks. You can call it Steve's tree. <laughs> Stevis trificus. Um, it's up to you but you can probably find the taxonomic identification from it. And then you can look for other woods in that same, same genus that you do know about, that you can find technical properties, and you're gonna get close. There's certainly gonna be exceptions to the rule. There can be vast differences to the whole thing. But for example, if you weren't able to find any numbers on SIPO, otherwise known as Udali, but you can find numbers on Sipili, well, guess what? Sipili is in the Intandrophragma genus, so is Udali. Intandrophragma cylindricum is Sipili. Intandrophragma utili is utili. And you look at those numbers and they're surprisingly similar. And you'll find that the appearance is surprisingly similar. So you can then find other wood within that intandrophragma genus, and you start to find that there's a lot of similarities there. Knowing full well that there's always going to be outliers and you can't trust everything, but you can at least to the point of saying, okay, I have a general idea how this is going to work. And then as you work it, you may determine, okay, well, this feels harder and this is probably why it's probably got a higher density in this, but you start to understand how these all interplay with one another, how they all interact with one another, and you can start to make observations. And when you pick up that piece of walnut and you go, my God, this walnut 
is so much harder than the wall that I'm used to working with. Does it change anything? Like, okay, well, I still got to work it. I still got to build this piece of furniture. I'm not going to throw it away because it's harder to work with. But if you look at it and you go, this is harder to work with, and you hold it up against the wall that, that you have worked with previously that felt easier, you probably notice that the harder to work walnut, well, it's darker. It's got more of that chocolatey brown color to it. Or you know what? There's a bit of figure in this and I'm dealing with some ingrain, which means I'm not dealing with necessarily janka hardness. I'm dealing with crushing strength because it's ingrain. It's along that longitudinal axis. And that's why this feels harder. And this is the geekery of the whole thing. It doesn't change how we work it, but you start to understand why wood works the way it does, why this wood is easier to work, feels better to work, why this wood finishes better than this wood, why this board finishes better than this board of the same species based upon things like appearance, grain structure, and your understanding of how that affects density, how that affects hardness, how that affects modulus of rupture, modulus of elasticity, and weight. These are the things that are important. These are the things that you need to start to understand. And if you do nothing else, look at Janka hardness and look at density and start to draw some conclusions from that. And if you're really confused, send me an email lumberupdate at gmail.com and let me know, show me your, your question, show me that you've done the research and, and, and ask me some questions. And really by starting to apply this knowledge in specific situations and starting to draw some conclusions, you will start to wrap your head around how they'll all interrelate. And that my friends is the true superpower of woodworking. And you know, I've got a lot more to learn about wood but that's one thing that I feel really, really confident about is I can look at a species of wood, I can look at the technical properties, and I can understand how it's going to work. And I can start to formulate a plan on how I'm going to overcome a particularly difficult joinery or difficult board or something like that by understanding those properties and exploiting the weakness in those properties. This board is really, really hard, but it's got a lower density. How can I exploit that? Or this board has really, really high strength, um, compression strength with the grain, but really low compression strength across the grain. These are all, um, oops, just hit my microphone. I'm getting too excited here. These are all of the um, the, the testing properties uh, of wood, the um, uh, E values uh, of the wood, E sub L, E sub V. These are compressions across the grain with the grain, um, etc. Um, because wood has different strength properties in all those different areas. Well, you can look at these numbers, you can look them up and you can start to see, okay, this was really, really hard. But if I plane across the grain, I can solve that problem. So I do the bulk of my work working across the grain and I do that last little bit of work to clean up the tear out with the grain when it's super, super hard when I just freshly sharpened my plane iron. That's the superpower we're talking about, folks. That's the important part of all of this. That's what I want you to take away from this. And, you know, if I haven't bored you to death with this geekery, then, well, continue and listen to some of those other episodes about MOR, MOE, and sharing strength and compression strength and Janka hardness because I've hit on all of them. So now that we're over an hour on this episode and I've harped on, let's talk a little bit and apply some of what we just learned. Aaron wrote in and said, um, 
What's the best way to dry small logs that I trim from a yard? I've got a bunch of apricot trees, which are producing a lot of cookie jar sized log blanks. I'd like to turn them in bowls and well, cookie jars because the apricot yields really pretty orange and pink streaks. It is a beautiful wood, one of those lovely fruit woods. The problem is these blanks are splitting like mad if I leave them in my woodshed to dry. I've tried cutting them longer, hoping that only 12 inches or so in each end of the log will check and be waste, but they still split right down the length almost to the pith. I've tried painting both ends, painting one end, storing so they'll drain, storing on their side, stripping the bark, leaving the bark, all to no significant benefit. Maybe they're drying too fast. Um, well, yes, they are drying too fast. The only way I can really work them is to turn them green within a month or so of cutting. Once I get them thin enough, they hold together and warp all funky instead of splitting. Cool, but I want to make a round one that stays round. Is it just the wood itself? I'm beginning to think there's a reason I've never seen anyone work with apricot. Thanks again for the show. Excellent question, Aaron. And I chose this question because it illustrates everything we just talked about. So first things first, the reason the wood is splitting is because it's drying too fast. And what's the one thing that's pretty constant with most fruit woods? They have a very high TR ratio. The tangential radial movement is pretty substantially different. So there's a lot of difference in movement going on. As it's drying, it's moving a whole lot tangentially and very little radially. The next thing, if you look up apricot or if you look up plum or even cherry to some extent, apple is a good example, pear is another good example, very high density and correspondingly high um, hardness. The porosity is almost always diffuse porous with tiny little pores, very solitary pores with a whole lot of dense meat, cellulose and lignin in between. So what that means is very little dead space, very little air. So as that wood moves, it can expand into those dead space buffer zones. It's bumping right up against other dense wood, which is why the TR ratio is so high, why the tangential movement is so high, why there's so much movement happening there and no steam valve, no dead space to go into. So it's splitting and cracking right down the middle to its relief point at the pith. So how do we counteract this? Well, the first thing was you talked about turning it while it's still green, while it's still full of moisture. First of all, it's easier to turn because while it's green, it's softer. The, the hardness is down. But because now you've turned it down to a, a thinner bit, the wood has less strength in and of itself, but it still has the same movement properties. So it's moving and warping all over the place. So one possibility is turning it, but not to your finished thickness. You know, say you want a quarter inch wall thickness, we'll turn it to a half inch thick, let it warp, and then turn it again. That's the, the, the principle of twice turned bowls. That will help. Um, sometimes you got to dunk the entire log. And anytime that I have commercially bought a fruit wood, I've done this in the past where I've gotten pear wood and things like that. You'll find that the entire block is dunked in wax. Um, an armor seal or not armor seal, anchor seal, sorry, wrong product. Anchor seal is essentially a wax emulsion. So people will actually take wax and dunk the entire turning blank into it. That will dramatically slow down the movement and it will allow it to equilibrate and, and, and you know, not crack all the pieces because of the high density number of, the, of that wood. So that's the one thing. When you're cutting it, don't just seal the ends, 
seal the whole dang thing. And for that matter, remove the bark so you're actually getting to the wood, remove the bark and the cambium layer, then dunk the whole thing in wax and do it immediately. I wouldn't gravity dry it, let it drain, do it immediately. Um, They might have a potentiality of mold at that point, but it's probably better than it checking all the hell on you. The next thing is, we're talking about, I don't know this for certain, but he's talking about old apricot trees, which are producing a lot of cookie jar sized log blanks. It sounds to me like he's not cutting down the tree, he's pruning those trees. Well, what are you pruning? You're pruning away branch wood. And branch wood is inherently unstable because branch wood grows, you know, horizontally or at some angle. So you're getting tension wood. And if you look at the pith, excuse me, look at the ingrain of that branch, you'll often find that the pith is off center because the tree it's grown. It's got gravity pulling on one side. Um, There's extra weight. The tree has to pile on more layers on one side of the tree to another in order to bolster it, to add structure so that that branch doesn't snap. That tree grows under tension. So when that branch is cut out, that tension is released, that wood is inherently unstable. So that TR number number that's in the textbook doesn't apply. It's worse. It's much worse because there's internal tension built up into that wood. So it's going to move and crack and check in response to that movement even more so. Does that mean you can't use it? No, it doesn't. But just like a knot will weaken a board, tension wood does the same thing. And it necessarily weakens it, but it ups the movement amount and the amount of tension that's in that wood needs to be released. There's more unpredictability going on there. We know this by looking at the ingrain and seeing how that pith is offset, seeing how the wood has has shunted it to one side and knowing that all that movement, all that tension that's built up into it, that as the tree grew, it was bolstering against that tension by piling growth rings on one side of the pith. That now is all being released because now you've got the shorter section of log. You're on to the right idea where you're like leaving it longer, but not that it's going to check. Unfortunately, because of the high density of the wood, when it starts to check, it's not going to stop. It's just going to keep going because there's no dead space. There's no steam valve that check is going to eventually hit a dead space and and the tension is released. No, there is no dead space. So fruit woods like apricot, like pear, um, peach are kind of the perfect storm of super dense, diffuse porous woods that oftentimes are pruned because you prune them to get more fruit. Very rarely is the whole tree cut down, but the, the morphology of the tree itself kind of short and stubby branches very quickly because we want it to in order to produce fruit. Um, so the trunk itself is going to be quite small. Uh, and even then with so many branches is going to have a lot of essentially defects, a lot of knots, which are going to affect the uh, the strength of the wood, but also the amount of movement and unpredictability of the movement. So Aaron, it doesn't mean that you can't do this, but it does mean that you probably have to expect a high amount of waste, definitely dunk them in wax, fully seal them, um, and focus on trying to do kind of twice turned. The other thing you can look at, look up shrink pots and the philosophy behind a shrink pot where you're essentially coring out the middle and expecting the outer wall to shrink around the top and bottom of your cookie jar. Shrink pots could be a good solution for you. Um, and you definitely want to use green wood for that. Last question, and then I will get out of your balls. This comes from Alex. He says, I listened to the episode where you discussed thermally modified lumber, and I'd like to try it for my next project. I was searching online, and I was unable to find anything besides decking material. Where is the best place to buy thermally modified lumber for furniture builds? I was unable to find a source for either dimensional lumber or rough sawn lumber. So, yeah, 
thermally modified wood at this current point is a decking product. That's what it's being used for, decking and, and cladding. The issue with that is um, it has to be, thermally modified wood has to be kiln dried first, like you would normally buy lumber, six to 8% North America, and then it's thermally modified. You don't take green lumber and throw it into a thermal modification kiln. Or you do, but you go through the normal kiln dry process and then you crank up the heat even more. Most thermal modification kilns are separate kilns from your traditional dehumidification kiln simply because they get to higher temperatures. It requires a slightly different mechanism, a little bit more control. And most thermal modification factories are actually buying kiln dried lumber from other sources and then doing the thermal modification. If you try to do it all in one shebang, you're liable to get a hell of a lot of defect and a lot of waste from it. The best way to get the best yield is to start with properly kiln dried and acclimated lumber and then take it up, you know, to the super high temperatures for thermal modification. The next thing is when you go to the super high temperatures, there is a greater risk of combustion. So we suck some of the air out in order to reduce that combustion. Well, the other thing that we do when it's rough sawn lumber, fuzzy rough sawn lumber is more prone to catch on fire. Those little splinters, those little fuzzy bits um, will ignite much faster because in cross section, they're quite small. So when you bring up that high temperature, um, they can ignite a lot more. Plus it's just an uneven surface that can cause unpredictability and just too many variables when it comes to thermal modification. So most thermal modification happens after the wood has been S4S, surfaced on four sides. And usually it's been molded into a decking product, an S4S, E4E, surface on four sides, eased on four edges product. Sometimes it's even grooved at a time or molded into a profile and then thermally modified. Even if that's not happening, if the molding is not happening, generally the boards have been um, milled into a consistent dimension. They're all five inches wide. They're all six inches wide because that's now you're taking a variable and turning it into a constant. And you can better predict and control the kiln schedule in order to appropriately thermally modify and not generate 60% waste. And this is long research over decades of doing thermal modification. When we first started doing it, people were like, yeah, this is great, but like half of it is crap. Half of it is torched and I can't use it. It's all honeycombed and crazy. So then they began to try to drive that defect quotient down. And they discovered the best way to do that is to go ahead and mill the lumber. Remove that variability um, and move it into a smooth surface that's going to take heat more evenly. The fuzzy surface will take heat very unevenly. The smooth surface takes it evenly. And the common dimensions means that as you raise the temperature, you're experiencing basically the same amount of stress due to the heating on every single board. So for now, it's not, it's not going to say it's impossible. You have to go to a thermal modifier directly and more than likely you would have to buy the entire load and sign a bunch of waivers saying you know that there's going to be a potentiality of a high amount of waste on this. So commercially available thermally modified material is being sold as a decking or cladding material, meaning it's coming in one by six, one by four, um, and maybe five quarter by six and five quarter by four. Um, S4S, E4E, or as a cladding product, sometimes it'll be molded into a rain screen profile or maybe a bevel edge profile or something like that. That's where we are at the current state of thermal modified lumber. Is it going to change? There are some companies that are selling thicker materials, but they're laminating them together. 
they're not thermally modifying 12 quarter material because just drying 12 quarter material sucks. Now try thermally modifying 12 quarter material, but you can thermally modify two inch material and then glue two boards together after they're thermally modified to get um, you know, a thicker board. And that's what we're seeing some of the modifiers doing is producing larger sizes that have essentially been laminated together. It's probably not the answer you're looking for, but that at least tells you how to buy it. And certainly there's no reason you can't buy decking material and turn it into furniture material. One of the most amazing things I learned when I started working wood was, hey, I can glue two boards together and make a wider board. You can do that. Thermal modified material will glue just as easily as, as unthermally modified material. Um, thermal modified will be thirstier, meaning a water-based glue um, is liable to suck up that water a lot faster. So your open time may be reduced a little bit. Not that dramatically, you have to worry too much about it, but there's no reason you can't glue this stuff together. So good luck with that, Alex. And uh, great question. I love talking about modified wood whenever I can. I think that's enough, don't you guys? This has been an information-dense episode. Um, I'd love some feedback. I'd love some questions. Um, anytime people have specific questions, hell, it's a great opportunity to bring someone on the show and walk through an example. Um, you know, I did a, a, a lecture on wood at Woodworking in America, good Lord, 2014, 2011? I don't know. It was a long time ago. And the entire lecture was kind of on these properties and I was taking questions from the audience about how this wood works, how that wood works, and I was relying heavily on technical properties. So if you have questions along this line, send them in. Email me at lumberupdate at gmail.com. Look me up on Instagram, uh, lumberupdate. Um, go to lumberupdate.com and you can submit a question via the contact form there. And of course, if you sponsor the show at patreon.com slash lumberupdate, I, I will tell you, your questions go right to the front of the line. Thanks for listening, folks. Go buy some lumber. <laughs>